Hi, and welcome once again to A Year With, the podcast where we read great minds and ideas from our common history, good ideas and bad ones, by reading together for a whole year. In 2022, we're exploring the Harvard Classics, also known as Dr. Elliot's Five Foot Shelf of Books. Uh, It's a world literature anthology that was published starting in 1909. For our new listeners, in that collection of books, um, in the Harvard Classics, the very first volume is a one-year suggested reading plan that has a roughly 15 minutes a day selection for each day. And I'm following that plan every week, encountering each reading selection in a spirit of curiosity and discovery. So I very much recommend going back to that introductory episode if you're new, so you can get a sense of what this is all about. This week is the eighth week in February 19th through February 25th. And we have read um, a Buddhist text on the absurdity of how humans use limited time. Um, one of Voltaire's letters on the English, where we get up close and personal with the Quakers, uh, Cardinal Newman's uh, spirited manifesto of the purpose of a university, Robert Burns's ode for George Washington's birthday, Robert Louis Stevenson on the uh, English government official and famous diary writer Samuel Pepys, um, two pastoral poems from John Milton, and a fiery piece of satire from Daniel Defoe that's in the same argumentum ad absurdum mode as Jonathan Swift's Immodest Proposal. Okay, so for the 19th, uh, we have our first Buddhist selection. So we've had a heavy emphasis on the West so far, which is appropriate for a collection in the English language. But today we have a a, a choice from the the Dhammapada, which is one of the Buddhist scriptures. Most of my baseline knowledge of Buddhism comes from Huston Smith's The World's Religions. It's a book that I bought when I was like a freshman in college, and I read it several times. So I think I bought it when I was like a senior in high school. So um, it's not a bad base to start from, but it is a very general text. Um, What we have here today is called the, The Devoted Wife. And Dr. Elliot presents it like this. The thousandth celestial wife of the garland god slipped and fell to earth where she took mortal form and served as an attendant in a temple. Death finally released her and she went back to heaven to tell her lord of the ways of men. So the basic idea is that this is kind of a parable of a god called the garland wearer. And he had a goddess wife who was essentially incarnated into a high caste family, but she retained the memory of her life as a goddess. Um, and this almost makes her sort of like a uh, like a spy in the enemy's camp. Not to say like humans are an enemy, but like someone who can gather inside info. So the text begins with this proverbial verse. It says, while eagerly man culls life's flowers with all his faculties intent, pleasure still insatiate, death comes and overpowers him. So when when she when this wife died and returned to her uh, garland god husband. She reported on how brief is, quote, the life of men. And the, the the gods here were astonished about how much of that brief time that humans waste. So it's kind of a way to set up uh, astonishment of looking at humans from the outside and saying, wow, it's so amazing how, you know, they do that wrong or they do this wrong. A hundred years is the time that we're given. And then the god asks, if that's the length of time to which men are born, do they pass the time asleep and reckless, or do they give gifts and do other meritorious deeds? And the answer is, uh, no, men are always reckless. Um, and this scene is the situation from which the proverb that we began came. Um, just to hear that again, 
It says, while eagerly man calls life flowers with all his faculties intent, of pleasure still insatiate, death comes and overpowers him. So that makes a lot of sense in the context of Buddhist philosophy, where really one's ultimate goal is to liberate yourself from suffering, much of which comes from desire. And you can see that in this proverb. Okay, so for the 20th, we're back to Voltaire's letters on the English. Uh, one of those of which we read on the 10th, which was uh, like 10 days ago. If you missed that episode, uh, Voltaire was a prolific writer during the French Enlightenment, and he lived in the early 18th century. So among his writings are the letters on the English, which he composed after three years living in England from 1726 through 1729. The first three letters are on the Quakers, uh, dealing with religion, which Voltaire was no friend of. Um, but the Quakers get a better hearing from Voltaire than other religions or other Christian sects. He meets the Quaker in the unique dress of the Quakers at that time. So they wore like a plain coat with no extra buttons and a, a hat made out of a beaver pelt. Um, and he asked the Quaker about the particulars of his religion. So, that, you know, the Quaker is kind of a radical sect. Um, and they didn't use baptism, for instance. They said this, sprinkling water on a child's head does not make him a Christian and saying that Jesus baptized no one. Of course, they are clearly overlooking the fact that he commanded his apostles to baptize. Um, and so Voltaire observes, thus did this pious man make a wrong but very specious application of four or five texts of scriptures, which seemed to favor the tenets of his sect, but at the time, same time forgot very sincerely a hundred texts, which made directly against them. Um, so Voltaire even himself, uh, as he appreciates the Quakers' uh, outlook, he criticizes the Quakers' misuse of scripture. Um, he passes over this argument, though, with a line that kind of represents this quality of common sense. So he says here, quote, a man should never pretend to inform a lover of his mistress's faults, no more than one who is at law the badness of his cause, nor attempt to win over a fanatic by strength of reasoning. So, you know, just when you're making an argument, Make sure that you uh, know what you're up against and don't waste your breath. And we also learn here that the Quakers have no communion and they dis we discuss their pacifism. So in letter two, Voltaire attends a Quaker place of worship. So certain forms of Quaker worship are marked by people just getting together in groups and sitting in silence until the spirit leads someone to speak. And then what we see here is something like uh, like the glossolalia or like the speaking in tongues that's practiced now by Pentecostals, you know, some charismatic Christians. Um, and as the Quaker says, we have no priests to our great happiness. Um, in the third letter, Voltaire brings up the problem that I think kind of frustrates all of the anti-sacramental, anti-credal denominations of Christianity, including the evangelical Christianity that I'm familiar with and, you know, still owe the foundations of my faith to. Um, he says, quote, you have already heard that the Quakers date from Christ, who, according to them, was the first Quaker. Religion, say these, was corrupted a little after his death and remained in that state of corruption about 600 years. So, end quote, if you reject, you know, sacraments, sacraments, priests, bishops, and all the rest, you're basically claiming that the church took this hard wrong turn almost immediately, and then the truth wasn't recovered for well over a millennium, and I feel like that that's untenable, and I think Voltaire is observing that here, too. Okay, so moving from Voltaire to Cardinal Newman, so for the 21st, we have John Cardinal Newman's essay, uh, The Idea of a University. I'm pretty familiar with this text. I mean, it's been pretty influential on my own thought. Um, in a time and a place where there's so much 
confusion on what and who a university is for. So is it for private vocational purposes, for job training for each student? Is it for the preservation of a culture, for the preservation of several bodies of knowledge? Is it primarily a public institution with public benefits? Um, we don't really seem to have a very settled answer today. So, you know, where modern universities are kind of stretched between these being these large, vaguely defined businesses kind of hybridized with temples of knowledge and culture um, and often filled with people who don't really believe in truth and are culturally relative, thus seeming to undermine all their own rationales for existing. Um, and yet they persist in existing. As someone who works around higher education administration, these are live questions for me. I don't want to go to work without some sense of meaning. So um, Cardinal Newman, who was a 19th century Catholic theologian, who was a convert from Anglican priesthood, is a good place to start, especially since the university as we know it grew out of the medieval Catholic church. To Newman, the university is a place for, quote, the communication and circulation of thought. It's a place where excellence is concentrated. So to Newman, great ideas and products of human ingenuity, they require interaction and concentration to sharpen the effects. Um, so the phenomenon of a city has a lot of the same principle in it. You, you collect a lot of people in one concentrated place. What it requires, most importantly, though, is living discourse. So this is what distinguishes, say, a university from just sitting down and reading a bunch of books. Um, you know, this is a, an active conversation today when you, some believe you can get the same thing you get out of a university education by reading or watching videos on YouTube or working through prepared materials. But, but to Newman, knowledge and wisdom isn't gained mainly through the processing of content, but through kind of forged through relationships. And this culminates in this sort of high-flown expression of the ideal of what a university is for, which can be placed next to its reality, which often falls short. And okay, so for the 22nd, we're back to Robert Burns, a poet who clearly is a favorite of Dr. Eliot. Robert Burns, whom we've read a couple times already, he might be considered something like the national poet of Scotland, uh, and many of his works deal with themes of interest to regular people rather than great personalities and nobles, and etc. You know, we see farming and drinking and things that interest common people. Uh, fittingly, Burns was a Republican, obviously as an 18th century Scot, not a member of you know, the U.S. Republican Party, but both of the terms have the same root. A Republican is someone who supports a republic, which is a conservative position. When you live in a republic, you support the status quo. Um, when you live in a monarchy, though, to be a Republican is to oppose the status quo, and so it's usually considered more change-oriented or even radical. So here, Burns offers an ode for General Washington's birthday, and that's right, we're talking about our General Washington, the leader of the American Revolution and the first president under the current Constitution. While Burns praises Washington's boldness and dignity in treasuring liberty, even while Washington lacked many of the outward signs of nobility, um, by the end of the poem, Burns is also making a commentary on the lukewarmness of Scotland in the pursuit of liberty. So no, and note, if you're reading this, looking this up, Caledonia is an ancient name for Scotland. So when he says Caledonia, that means Scotland. So he turns then, quote, Thee, Caledonia, thy wild heaths among, famed for the martial deed, the heaven-taught song. To thee I turn with swimming eyes. Where is that soul of freedom fled? 
Burns invokes here the memory of William Wallace, the Scottish freedom fighter who was portrayed in the movie Braveheart. Um, he wonders why a liberty-loving people that would have produced Wallace no longer seem to have that spirit. So this is fun. For February 23rd, we have an essay from the author Robert Louis Stevenson on Samuel Pepys. So Stevenson lived and wrote in the late 19th century, and he's known for books like uh, Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in addition to his essays. Samuel Pepys lived in the 17th century, and he was a high-level naval administrator in England. But he's not really remembered for that. He's remembered most for maintaining an extremely detailed diary of his life, um, where he bore, he bore everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as Stevenson points out, this work is particularly powerful since Pepys was a minor public figure, right? And so we have documents that he was involved in in his life. So public documents that survive, we can compare those with the diary that he left, we can compare his public and his private life, uh, what appears to fill the man, the mind of an energetic and successful man of action, and then what really holds his attention when he goes home. Stevenson observed here, so, uh, you know, this is a kind of a preface, but he observes here that the diary holds up. It's uh, unparalleled because of the distinction between how Pepys was known by his contemporaries and his descendants because uh, of his conscious honesty and because of the intimacy with which he put himself out there in the public. So the act of diary writing is kind of an odd thing. Like, who are you writing to? Um, or as Stevenson writes, uh, quote, to whom was he posing in the diary and what in the name of astonishment was the nature of the pose? End quote. Stevenson concludes that Pepys had the spirit of a child for all of the grave publicness of his life and work, and that he just recorded it for the sheer fun of stumbling upon his own work in a later time. Um, you know, I do this sometimes if I hide some life artifact in the pages of a book for later discovery, I'll use it as a bookmark or something, and then 15 years later, it falls out. And maybe I remember why I did it, and maybe I don't. So always love Samuel Pepys. Very interesting if you ever get into that. So for the 24th, we have um, two paired pastoral poems from John Milton. So we're going back to John Milton again, L'Allegro and Il Penseroso. So pastoral poems. So pastoral poetry is a sort of genre that idealizes rural landscape. So th this was often accompanied with like classical Greek patterns of invoking goddesses. And Milton draws heavily on the traditions. So here, L'Allegro refers to the happy man. And Il Penseroso refers to the thinker into Milton, thinking here almost inherently associated with melancholy and sadness. So in L'Allegro, uh, the goddess uh, Euphrosyne, which is known to men as mirth, carries the action. We're drowned in laughter. There's maying or celebrating May Day in the spring and partying and laughter. And then in contrast, El Pinceroso gives a hard shift. Uh, hence, vain, deluding joys, the brood of folly without father bread. Um, the god here invoked is melancholy. And what's fascinating is the way that like deep thought and melancholy are just inherently yoked together. Why, why does thinking have to be prepared to be paired with sadness? Uh, yet it is. Um, Milton's style here, it's very classical. It's digressive. He weaves away from the main point and eventually comes back. Um, but it's just a really good example of uh, pastoral poems being translated into Milton's time and just a, a look at Milton's mastery of these forms. So we're closing out the week on the 25th with Daniel Defoe's uh, fiery satire pamphlet, 
the shortest way with dissenters. So you have to read this knowing that it's a satire. So, you know, think of your sarcasm. Um, it's actually debated whether it's truly satire, but it, it must have some elements of it for sure. So remember at the time, this is published in 1702, England was officially uh, a Protestant country, still is, under the Anglican Church. Um, however, there had traditionally been like this implied toleration for more radical groups like Quakers and Anabaptists and the like, um, many of which these caused official troubles for the established church. But, and these groups enjoyed a lot more toleration than, say, Catholics, even though their doctrines were often even more at odds with the teachings and practices of the Anglican church than the Catholic church. Um, so in this text, Defoe spins up to this brutal fever pitch, making these fervent arguments why the dissenters, these radical Protestant groups should be extirpated from the country like a cancer or like venomous vipers. Um, he, he reaches its crux toward the end, literally a crux. Um, he pictures the, the Catholic Church and the dissenting Protestants like two thieves who are now crucified with Jesus on either side, and he winds up, now, let us crucify the thieves. Now, his case is so brutal and impractical that it mocks a rhetorical style of his opponents. So, for one, his use of Exclamation points is so abundant here as to be absurd. Um, it seems that this act of satire was not perceived as such appropriately, and it won him no friends at the time. It even landed him in some legal hot water. Um, but in this, we get a taste of the style and the approach to public argument that was employed in some of the most contentious issues at that time. Um, and Defoe is kind of considered to be a master practitioner of this type of rhetoric. So the use of satire. Um, and we'll go ahead and end there for the week. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, you can email me at zach.garrett at outlook.com, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T at outlook.com. And next week we have some Montaigne and some George Herbert's biography. So we're certainly back in my wheelhouse and I will see you then.